Well, turn with me to Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. We're going to read chapter 1 and then we're going to look at verses 27 to 29. Particularly the end of verse 27. Let's hear God's word, Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and fellow brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body a flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, 
became a minister. Now I, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. And so that's God's blessing as we meditate on this passage. O Lord our God, we need the light of your Holy Spirit. We need you to guide us in speaking and listening and take home this word to our hearts tonight. And bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in John 15, maybe we should turn there a moment. John 15, we have Jesus talking about one of the illustrations that he gives about how believers are united to him. John 15. The idea is that, as we saw in this passage and read in Colossians, there is an old stock, the old Adam. That's who we are by nature in our sin, connected to him. We need to be cut off from that old stock and engrafted into new. And the idea is, by Jesus, is we need to be drawing life. We need to have all that we uh, exist in our spiritual life from Jesus. So if you look at verse 4, he, he has this call to those who are now in the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit too, he says he's going to prune and, 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 and take it away. But the branch that does bear fruit, he's going to prune it to bear more fruit. Now he says, abide in me, verse 4, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The, the focus here in John 15 is often on the word, the believer needs to abide in Christ. We need to uh, draw all of our life and energy from him. If we've been born again, everything that we have to grow in faith and in godliness is being connected to the vine connected to Jesus and that's true that is a reality that he is speaking about here abide in me but notice in verse 4 he says also immediately and I in you go to verse 5 I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him Many times when we read this passage, we're only focused upon this fact. Abide in Jesus, rest in Jesus, cling to Jesus, live out of Jesus. And all of that's true. 
But the reality is, Jesus is saying, I am also in you. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The idea, again, is Jesus... As the word of God, he is abiding in his people. This discourse that we find in John 15 has already started in John 14. When Judas, not Iscariot, asked him the question. How will you show yourself? How will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered with these amazing words. If a man love me. He will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode home with him. Do you grasp the significance of what Jesus is teaching in John 14 and 15? And he later will add, and the Holy Spirit who is the comforter, he is going to send of the Father in his name. He says, this spirit will bring to your knowledge and understanding all things, whatever I have said to you. And Jesus had told his disciples many things, and they recorded these things. That's why John the Apostle is able to write these things by the inspiration of the Spirit of precisely what Jesus said. Jesus just didn't say to to the disciples and to those who would follow him, abide in me, rest in me, trust in me. But he says, and I will abide. My Father and I will come and dwell in you. In essence, what Jesus is saying to the disciples and what he's going to say to us, it's necessary, it is expedient, it's important that I go away from you. Because in going away from you, I will send the comforter who will be closer to you than I ever could be while I was walking with you on earth. That is what Jesus is communicating to his disciples. And now we come to this passage in Colossians. Which is really Paul, in some sense, unpacking this glorious truth. While we'll look at some of the context here surrounding these words, I want to especially focus on the last words of 27. I'll read all of 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, The hope of glory. And so our theme is God's riches made known. First of all, through whom or in Christ. Secondly, to whom? Christ in us. Christ in the Colossians. Christ in believers today. And then lastly, what are these riches? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is talking here about a mystery. We looked at that briefly this morning in our time in Sunday school together about Paul using this word mystery. Here he uses it again uh, to the Colossians. He's not using this word in the New Testament as he writes to the various churches about something that we can never really know for sure. It's kind of clouded over and it's kind of hidden from view and you don't really know because it's a mystery. No, that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not 
saying either that, well, there's just a few select people that will ever get to know the mystery. And you're just maybe one of those fortunate ones. No, he's not saying that either. He is saying God the Father, through Jesus Christ, has revealed this glorious truth that until this time wasn't known. But now it is. And that's what he's wanting to communicate with the Colossians too. This mystery which Paul says has now been revealed to all to know, to understand, to believe. It's really, we could say, what God is actually working out in time that all can now see what was before covered and hidden, glossed over to some degree. And so what Paul is saying here in this text is what had been hidden in the ages before was that God was going to bring in also the Gentiles. This had been God's plan. This was his purpose from the very beginning. It wasn't only his people Israel from a bloodline of Abraham, but the message of the gospel was to be to all people, Jew and Gentile, both. And he would gather them in, Paul is saying, into one body, the church. And we hear in this passage too, it is Christ who is the head, verse 18, and the church, his body. Paul, being a minister particularly to the Gentiles, has this weight, this burden on his heart to say to these Gentiles at Colossae, you are part of Christ's body. And that's in essence what is being said tonight. We aren't Jews. Maybe we have Jewish blood in someone here. But typically of the blood of Abraham, we probably don't have much of those genes within us. But that's not the important point of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is talking about those who have come to understand and to know Jesus Christ in the gospel and have been called out of darkness, of death and sin into the life and communion of God in Jesus Christ. Christ. And Paul says God has made known this mystery. This is his plan. This is his work. And his purpose is to make known the riches of his glory among the Gentiles. Well, what is that mystery of his glory? Well, Paul tells us in these few words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If we really understood and could penetrate into the depth of those few simple words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is an ocean of glory and truth, comfort and peace in those words. I hope at the end of this service and into this new week, these words will resound in our minds. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what Paul says, verse 28, we preach and proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
This was such an important subject for the Apostle Paul. This is, he says, what he teaches and what he preaches. Always. And so Paul is saying here in our first thought, the essence of through whom these riches of God's glory are contained. Who is it? He's been talking about this person from the beginning of this chapter, this letter to the Colossians. Christ. Christ is the essence of this mystery. Paul has been occupied with this theme. And when he comes to pray finally for the Colossians, he he gives thanks to the Father who made them partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who delivered them out of darkness and translated them into the kingdom of his dear Son. And it seems as if you go back and read this when you get home tonight or tomorrow, when it seems as if Paul mentions here and it comes to mind the riches of Christ, suddenly his mouth and his heart just open or expands when they think of Christ. He says it is in the Son we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And as Paul speaks about redemption, he is immediately reminded, you're bought with a price. That's what redemption means. You're bought back. You Colossians, you at faith, you and myself have sold ourselves by nature to sin. We saw that this morning. But he, Jesus, bought us back with the price of his blood. How did this all begin? Well, in the eternal heart of God, in the stillness of eternity, God sought out a plan. He planned a way in Christ that his son would be glorified and set forth as the head, as the husband of his people, of his church, And that sinners would be gathered in and bring praise and glory to his name. But there is actually, not only in the eternal counsel of God, all of this happening as he's contemplating and planning this truth, but he actually does it. He carries out this glory. Paul tells the Philippians, the Son of God, Jesus, who we're talking about, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and became a man, a servant made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cursed cross. This is the person of the mystery that Paul is telling us about. Jesus, who was with his father forever. Never a moment Jesus was separated from his father. And yet in a moment of time, he was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary and he joined the divine nature and the human nature mystery in one. Never to be separated again. But he did so In that very moment, because he already had in his view the cross. The price to be paid in order to pay the price for sin. 
This is the mystery God manifests in the flesh. This is the unsearchable riches of Christ. That in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When, when you would have seen Jesus walking on the face of the earth. As you read the gospels. Think of this. God himself in a human being is walking, is talking, is acting, is living, is suffering, is dying, is rising again. John told us, and the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he was such a one who had compassion he looked out over the multitudes of people and he saw their suffering. He saw them struggling on in daily life and he saw all their sorrow and their pain and he had compassion. Because it wasn't heart simply of a man. It was the heart of the Son of God. Jesus, the God-man who is able to sympathize with us in all our suffering. Who is able, because he was tempted like as we are, he's able and willing to help us in our hour of need. He continues to make intercession. And all power and authority has been surrendered and given, if you will, into the hand of Jesus. He's been seated now on the throne in glorified flesh. That's where he is right now, in heaven. In his human nature glorified, in his divine person, he is seated there on the throne. The Father has given to him all authority and all power. That's what he said when he left. That's the power that exists with his people and with his church to this day. There is absolutely no power on earth that can overcome it. And yet we are so weak and so faltering and, and stumbling because we think we are getting defeated, we are getting overthrown, we are getting too much to bear. But our head, our Christ, is seated. On the throne of the universe. It's a mystery. It's a glorious truth. And not only is he glorious in his person as the second person of the Trinity, but in his work. He is, Paul tells us, the firstborn of every creature. He is the preeminent one. He is the foremost one. He is the only one. He tells us, by him all things consist. Through him he reconciled all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Without him there was nothing made. He is the preeminent son. And he came to this earth as the servant of Jehovah. He sought to do his father's will. And he suffered and took the place that we deserved by bearing the cross, by bearing the curse of the cross. Whoever was hung on a tree was cursed of God. And the sinless Lamb of God, the offering for sin, gave himself willingly 
to be crucified. Christ did this in his flesh, but he's risen again. And so what a blessing it would have been to have been the disciples, I suppose, and witnessed all the things that Jesus did firsthand. It transpired right before their eyes. They could taste it. That's what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled the word of life. And this is what we declare to you, that you also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things, John says, why? So your joy would be full. Christians are to be joyful, full of joy. Not because they have so much to brag about. They have nothing, nothing to brag about. But him, the preeminent one, Jesus. And Paul in Ephesians, we looked at this morning too in, in, in Sunday school. In Ephesians he says, Paul has also... As the glorious head of the church and husband preserves her and presents her holy and without blemish before his father, unreprovable in God's sight. This is the mystery that's now known. It's no secret. It's revealed. It's transpiring in our lives and in the life of this world in the church. And the world ought to be seeing this taking place in the church and be amazed and wonder and see this mystery unfolding. Does the world see a difference between us and them? Do they see this mystery actually being unfolded in our lives? Now this is the wonder then that Paul is saying. God chose among the Gentiles to make the riches of the glory of this mystery known, which is Christ. He is the one in whom we are blessed. But the second thing Paul is saying here is, he's been talking about Christ, he's been heralding Christ, but now he says, Christ in you. Christ in you. Paul is saying to the Colossians, whom he had just said previously, you at one time were alienated. You were divorced from. You were separated from God. You were not only separated from God by your sin, but you were even outside of the people of God, the Jews. But through Christ, you have been brought near. You have been reconciled. God did this. It wasn't something you, Colossi, it isn't something you here at Faith or I have done. It's what God has done in Christ Jesus. We, like those at Colossae, were estranged from God. We were even hostile towards God. We were children of wrath like as others. But Christ, when he came, he gave his life in order to buy us back. And he found us in our sin and ransomed us, delivered us sent his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to draw us to Christ. We were without hope in this world. 
afar off, darkened in our understanding, alienated from God, Paul says. But now he says to the Colossians, and he says to us tonight, God has made known to you the riches of his glory in Christ. When we have been born again and come to faith in Christ, this is the fruit of the work that Christ accomplished while he was here on earth. And when he sends his spirit, he accomplishes this work in the lives of each of his people, gathering them in, bringing them into this lively, this living body that he is growing into a marvelous temple wherein God himself will dwell. And not only do we need the Holy Spirit in the beginning to make us alive from the dead, but we need this Holy Spirit of Christ to dwell within us so that as we hear more of Christ, as we learn the gospel better, as we read the word of God, we begin to see with greater clarity just how sinful we were and are and how great and glorious and what a savior Jesus is. Now what Paul is saying is that the New Testament believers have something even far better than the disciples had before Christ ascended. Do we believe that? Let me repeat it. Paul is saying in this passage that we have something far better than the disciples had even when Jesus was present with them. Christ was near the disciples. This morning I mentioned John laid his head on Jesus' bosom. He could feel Jesus. He could hear Jesus' heart beat. But that's less than what Paul is saying here. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who comes in the name of Christ and dwells in the hearts of his children. Who is it that now comes and lives in the heart? The Comforter. Jesus says he would not come. The Comforter would not come if he would not go away. But if I go away, I will send him. It is expedient, therefore, that I go away so that the Comforter might come. You know, I'm quite certain the disciples, when they heard that, would have much rather have had Jesus said, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stay with you the rest of your lives. I'll stay with you another hundred years. They probably would have rejoiced in that fact. But Jesus says, no, it's more necessary that I go away. And this question might be a test of whether we understand what Jesus and what Paul are saying. What is it to have communion with Christ? 
Would you rather tonight have Jesus standing here in the flesh preaching to you? Or would you rather have his Holy Spirit dwelling within you? Do you really believe, do I really believe that it's to our advantage that Jesus is gone and his bodily presence from us, but that he has sent his spirit to dwell, to live within us? The problem often is, is we can relate to something physical. We can relate to a father and a son. We can see that kind of in our mind and imaginations. But then when it comes to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we're kind of like, well, what, who is that? What, what is that maybe even? And he's the third person. They are equal. They are each God, not three gods, but one. And, and, and so it's Jesus, if you could say this in this way, it's Jesus in the Spirit who comes to live and dwell in us. We, we can't understand and comprehend this mystery. And so in John 14 to 17, Jesus is unpacking this truth that another he is going to send, not a different kind, but another exactly of the same kind as I am. And so the disciples, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, came to know in reality this experience of what it was. Christ in them. The hope of glory. The one who comes to us, Jesus is saying, is going to be like me in every way. In everything. I have been with you till now, Jesus is saying, but this comforter will come. He will be with you. He will be in you. And I have sent him and he will teach you all things. The one who will guide you and lead you and teach you is going to dwell within you. Children, right now, in this building... The living God, the only true God, lives in the heart of all of his people. Jesus was the disciples' comforter when he dwelt with them. But he says, I will send the comforter to you. In my peace, I will leave with you. I will give it to you. I am going to prepare a place for you. I know need to go to heaven to prepare this place for you. But I will not leave you. My Father and I will come and dwell in you by my Spirit. And we will make our abode in you. That's what Jesus is saying. And at that day, he says, you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. That's a mystery. But it's no longer a mystery. Because we've been told this truth. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of his children, of his people. He's the one who opens the eyes, who gives life in the new birth and gives us to see with new eyes our sin. Gives us to see with new eyes who Christ is in, this, in his 
having died on the cross and suffered in the place of sinners. And we, we go to him by faith and we trust in his word and his promises. And the spirit is working all this in our heart as we read the scriptures, as we hear the gospel proclaimed. Our heart is drawn to Christ. We love him. We, we serve him. We worship him. It's because of the spirit of Christ. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is, is giving us to see that just as there's fellowship between the Father and the Son by the Spirit, it is through the Spirit that we will have fellowship with God, with the Father, and with the Son. And Jesus is saying, this is the Spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it does not see Him. Neither does not know Him. But He says, you know Him. Because he dwells in you and shall be in you. That's what Paul is getting at in this text. Christ in you. Paul wanted the Colossians, no doubt, who, just as you and I, realize that when we're born again, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's so much remaining flesh, so much sin, so many struggles that we still have. We sometimes ask, how can it be consistent? How can this dilemma, how can this struggle of Romans 7 exist in my life? Well, Paul is telling the Colossians, when we have been called out of darkness into his kingdom, into his marvelous light, he has given us his spirit. Because no one can see that. No one can have been born again without the Spirit. And he having given us the Spirit of Christ who now lives in us shall never be taken away. This is what Jesus was saying in essence in John 3. When he is lifted up, whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. They receive the Spirit of Christ. Christ in you. And it's through this preaching of the word, through this explanation of this letter of Paul and Paul's letter to the church at Colossae that the Spirit is opening our eyes, our understanding to, to, to even grasp in some kind of elementary way Christ in me? How is it possible? What does that mean? What does that look like? It is the Spirit then who gives us, through the Word as we read it, comfort in our trouble. When we're perplexed and we're disturbed in our conscience, in our heart, and we go to the Word of God and we pray and we read the Word and, and there's passages that come to our heart and speak to us. Who is that? Holy Spirit. Who is it to uncover our, our, our understanding of where we may be sinning against someone else or even sinning against God in some way? Who is it that enlightens us and convicts us of that truth? It's the Spirit of Christ. He will take the things of Christ and show them to us. He shows us not only the depth of our need, but He shows us the suitability, the glory, and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by this same Spirit that the believer is transformed from one level of glory to another. 
if you're stationed at the same place in your spiritual life, we need to maybe ask ourselves the question, have we quenched the Spirit? Have we not know His voice? We're not listening to the Word that comes to us. Because the great object of the Spirit is to transform us. And He often uses difficult ways and trials and afflictions to to cause us to cling to God, to put off sin, to put off those inclinations to think of ourselves and be selfish. And he causes us to trust in Christ and to rest in him and to believe his word of promise and to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, to love others, to serve others, to care for others, to show mercy. And this is the point of Paul in this passage as well as he goes on in the book of Colossians. He wants to present everyone mature, perfect, verse 28, in Christ Jesus. Because he knows in the preaching of the word, in the writing of this letter, he's going to, the Spirit, transform the Colossians into this likeness of Jesus. Let me read you Romans 8. And if Christ be in you, Paul says... The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. If you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You see, Paul, as the great apostle, also to the Gentiles... He wasn't just doing his work as a missionary and his calling as a preacher to see how many people would be gathered in. It wasn't his primary objective and goal that God had given to him. No, it was not only to preach the gospel that people would be gathered in, but that those who were gathered in would be transformed, changed. And the progressive sanctification of their lives into the likeness of Christ himself. The apostle knew the struggles of the believer on the ongoing path of spiritual life, but he is reminding the Colossians here of this glorious truth. Christ is in you. There was a Puritan, Richard Baxter, who labored in England in the 17th century, and he had many bodily afflictions, many trials in his life, many ailments. He himself said that he had seldom an hour in which he was free from pain. And when someone lives in that condition, I think you're more readily aware and you're living in light of how short and brief one's life really is. And he always wondered, would he ever recover? And in his mid-30s, he meditated in this condition on the joys of heaven and the blessedness of the age to come. And he was taken up by what Paul says in the passage we're looking at tonight. And he wrote these words, 
He made it his practice to meditate 30 days each day on the thoughts of heaven and glory. And this is what he said. If you lie complaining of deadness and dullness, if you just lay there complaining of deadness and dullness, that you cannot love Christ, nor rejoice in his love, that you have no life in prayer, nor any other duty, and yet neglect this quickening employment, you are the cause of your own complaint. Is not your life hid with Christ in God? Where must you go but to Christ for it? And where is that but to heaven where Christ is? Thou wilt not come to Christ that thou mayest have life. If thou wouldst have light and heat, why are you no more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, for lack of going to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted, and your duties as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if the offering will not burn. Light your lamp with this flame. Feed it daily with the oil from thence and see if it will not gloriously shine. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. In your lack of love to God, lift up your eye by faith to heaven. Behold his beauty, contemplate his excellency and see whether his amiableness and perfect goodness will not ravish your heart. As exercise gives appetite, strength, and vigor to the body, so these heavenly exercises will quickly cause the increase of grace and spiritual life. In essence, what Paul is saying, meditate on this truth this week. It ought to warm and fire the affections of our hearts. Christ in you. The hope of glory. In all of this, Paul was careful to give glory to God. He knew there was no glory in the Colossians. He knew there was no glory in himself. He calls himself the least of all the saints. But he says he's working. Did you notice that when we read that? Look at verse 29. He wants to present every man perfect. So he's teaching the Colossians. I want you to know this. I want you to live like this. I want you to believe this. I want you to know this mystery. For this I toil, struggling. He's, he's wrestling. He's, he's going on with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. Every believer is called to be like Paul here. We want to know Christ. We want to live out of Christ. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Was it because Paul didn't know Christ? No, he knew, he knew him. He knew him this much. Christ in me. But he said, I want to know him more. I want to know him better. I want to live out of Christ more. I want Christ to dwell in me more exuberantly, more Powerfully, more visibly for everyone to see. I want glory to belong to God, to Christ. And that brings us to the last thought then. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the glorious hope of the resurrection. If you go back to verse 5, this is what he's been talking about. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... 
of which you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And then verse 23. Indeed, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. This is the hope Paul has. The hope of what? He saw people dying all around him. But the hope of the resurrection. If Christ lives in us, when we die, our bodies go to the grave, but our spirits return to God in glory, awaiting the day in which that spirit glorified will be reunited with a glorified body risen from the dead to sit at the table of the Lamb forever. Christ in you, the hope of everlasting glory. Hope. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I washed my vehicle today. That's how we use hope. That's not very certain, that's not very confident. That's not how Paul uses the word hope. Hope in a biblical language is an assured confidence, a resting upon God's word of truth as a solid rock. It's an expectant looking for a fulfillment of a promise. Hope is connected to trust and expectancy, a yearning desire. Christ in you, the hope, the confidence, the assurance of glory. And the earnest, the down payment, Paul is saying, has already been given. Christ in you. Again, Jesus' prayer in John 17, Father... I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That glory, Jesus says, will be given to his followers. He says, they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. We need to meditate on this this week. Read through John 14 to 17. Reread this passage, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And marvel. I don't know if you're like me, but when I look at myself, there's no glory. 
Christ in me is the hope of glory. That the glory of God should be given to us. That means if we will be a light to this world, we must give testimony to the world that Christ lives in us. If we confess to believe in Jesus as the Savior, we're confessing that we believe he's given us his Holy Spirit, that his Spirit dwells within us. So we shouldn't be living like the world. We should be being transformed into Jesus' likeness. So that when the world who lives in sin and is in darkness of their understanding and is confused about the time in which we live, they should be able to look at the church and look at the believer and go, there's someone who knows something I don't, who knows a mystery that I'm unaware of. They know Jesus. Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. This should be the result of knowing and believing the mystery that has been told us Christ in you, the hope of glory. We should be living in light and joy of this glorious truth. That when we are joined to the vine, we realize and believe He is also joined to us. Close with this illustration. There was a story told of the wealthy man, Lawrence of Arabia, in the 1920s. And Arab countries were still very poverty stricken at that time. And he had brought some of his poor Arab friends with him to visit Paris, the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, and so on. All of those sites did not impress his friends who he had brought with him. They were rather enamored with the running water in their hotel room. They lived in tents. They had to go get water from the well. And all they had to do in the motel room was turn the spigot and out came fresh, cold, clear water. They'd never seen anything before in their arid country. They were amazed. In fact, as they were about to leave, Lawrence found two of them working with wrenches trying to remove the faucet from the sink and take it with them. But Lawrence had to explain that without the mountains around Paris and the draining of the water coming down the mountains and feeding the streams and the reservoirs and these pipes, there would be no fresh water coming through the faucets. The faucets were utterly useless. We are utterly useless. But 
Christ living in me, flowing through my life, through my words, through my actions. He is the source. He is the origin. He is the life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, help us to understand this truth, to believe this mystery, to comprehend it in some fashion and measure that will transform us and help us to live more godly and more glorifying to our Father in heaven. Bless us the rest of today and in this week as well. Bless the offerings that are received today and also now for the general fund and give that it would serve the purpose of your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.